think I've got my times right, but this is the last full day of session, isn't it? Mm. Get a bit muddled up with time sometimes. I had to remind myself. Um, the title of this talk is The Sword That Kills and The Sword That Gives Life, but it's a little different from the one I gave early in the week about killing the Buddha, etc. Although we seem to have had a lot of reference to, to swords and killing this session, killing Buddhas, killing patriarchs, patriarchs, Zen students, scientists. It's like the last scene in Hamlet, isn't it, with all the dead bodies all over the floor. Um, but I'm using this term to um, talk about the precepts. Um, this being the last day of session, it's usually good to have a Dharma talk that sort of takes us back out into everyday life and how we can take this experience back into our families and communities and workplace and so on. So it continues. And uh, traditionally, the, uh, the uh, precepts have been uh, worded in the negative. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, etc. Um, in Diane Rosetto's book, Diane is one of the teachers in our Ordinary Mind Zen School, a wonderful person, written a, a wonderful book called Waking Up to What We Do. What Diane uh, did in that book was turn the precepts round in the way that they're language, so they're looked at as aspirations. So instead of don't kill, I take up the way of nurturing life, for instance. Um, but my way of putting them together um, and uh, is to put the negative with the positive. I think they're both important. When we put the negative with the positive, we have the sword that kills and the sword that gives life. That's what each precept does. Um, and what I've done is I've uh, I come across on the web the um, uh, wording of the precepts by Norman Fisher, who's a really wonderful Soto Zen teacher in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And he's put it together in this way of the negative and the positive, which fits with my own way of looking at it. So I'll read them to you as we go along. But just to put it in context, <clears throat> Zen in the West got a bad name um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, etc. You know, at the time when um, many of us took up Zen practice years ago when it first came to Australia and America um, because it didn't seem to place much emphasis on um, precepts or ethics at all. D.T. Suzuki's books, which were so influential and so wonderful, uh, emphasised insight, satori, the realisation of no self. And uh, meditation and, and precepts didn't really get much of a look in there, although he went through traditional Zen training himself. But his books conveyed that. And um, on top of the... Uh, as well as that, with... Um, what emerged in, in further years, um, particularly um, through a book by Brian Victoria called, I think, Zen at War. So it documented very clearly and alarmingly um, and embarrassingly um, Zen involvement in the war effort um, of the Japanese 
um, and the destruction that occurred. So it made people wonder more about where Zen was coming from if it didn't have any kind of ethical basis to it. Now it always has, um, and it still does. And it's important that, um, that those precepts are considered an integral part of the practice for all of us. There's no Zen without precepts. There's no Zen without sitting meditation, and there's no Zen without some aspiration or experience of no self. They all come together. You can see these three categories, or these three components of the Dharma in um, the Eightfold Noble Path. They're all there. It's all about the cultivation of insight, the cultivation of meditation or serenity, and the cultivation of uh, not harming and supporting life. They're all there. So it's important any true dharma has those three components running through it. It's not true dharma without any of them missing. And it's possible that people can have um, um, spontaneous experiences of um, insight into no-self, usually shallow, sometimes deep, usually not life-transforming sometimes life-transforming. Um, but without um, uh, a meditation practice to follow it through or a precept practice to follow it through, at the, at the least, often those people just get caught in what we call being caught in the absolute or caught in emptiness in their life. And it kind of, kind of just sort of a bit irrelevant. Mm-hmm. At its worst, it leads to um, charismatic megalomania. People become inflated by their experience. It's not kind of worked through, through the the day-to-day work of precepts and meditation. However, if we have um, just meditation without um, precepts and without an inkling of insight or aspiration towards insight, then all we can possibly acquire is a dead calm within the self-centered dream. If we have precepts without insight and without meditation, then it can lead to a kind of blind morality, the kind of blind morality that one saw to the extreme in the Spanish Inquisition, or versions of it somewhere on that spectrum where it's used unwisely. And instead of it then being a sword to, uh, to kill and to give life, it just becomes a sword that kills. It doesn't bring life with it. And um, in Joko's foreword to uh, Diane's book on the precepts, she puts a little warning in there that it's important that precepts are practiced with meditation, you know, with mindfulness, so that you develop a kind of uh, intelligence and compassion in the way that you use them. So otherwise they can do harm. Mm-hmm. 